If you would please open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. I want to begin this morning with this thought and show how this thought from the Word of God from Isaiah 48, verse 11, presents a a possible dilemma, a possible problem when we come to the New Testament Scriptures. You see, in Isaiah 48, verse 11, God insisted that His name would not be profaned. And He declared clearly, so plain to understand, He declared, My glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. And then you come to a passage such as this in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, which Eddie read a moment ago. And what we find here is this text putting Jesus where God alone belongs. The creator of all things, sustainer of all things, the heir, the goal of all things, the redeemer, preeminent in everything. If the Lord will not allow His name to be profaned and He says, My glory I will not give to another, then who is this Jesus? If all of these things which God alone does, if all of these works which God alone does are being attributed to Jesus, who is this Jesus? The purpose of Colossians is that you and I would reach knowing together Jesus Christ with such full conviction that we would be beyond the reach of all deception. And so the title follows then that Christ is all. He is all. And so it is our aim to know Him together. This morning... Let us, each and every one of us, seek Christ together. Let's press into Him together with the deepest and the fullest conviction. We find in this passage, these six verses, such a beautiful synthesis of the work and the glory of Jesus Christ spanning all of history so that this text becomes one of the most weighty and wonderful Christological passages in all the Scripture for teaching the exaltation of this man, Jesus. Colossians 1, 15-20 has very few peers. So this is, again, so weighty and so wonderful that it is beyond us to do it justice with our words. It is really what we're going to see beyond us to give to Jesus all the worship that He is worth. And just to hear the Lord say, My glory I will not give to another. And then see all of this glory, which is due God alone given to Jesus. Our hearts sing. Our hearts sing at the glory we see in Christ because we know who He is. The fullness of God dwells perfectly in Him. So let's, it's such a privilege. We are so blessed to be gathered together as brothers and sisters in the Lord so we can seek Him together. Let's ask the Lord's help 
Let's ask that he will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive all that the word has for us today. Father, we need your help. We cannot help ourselves. But you have given to us so much grace in Christ that it is our full conviction. It's our assurance by your word that there is more for us today. We expect, Father, and we ask that you would lavish grace on us today to draw us closer to you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us not only to seek your Son together today by the power of your Spirit, but Lord, I pray that this passage would take root in us, this Word, that we seek Him. We're compelled to seek Him all our lives. Oh Lord, I pray that this passage would continue to be our meditation and the song of our heart, and it would just compel up from within us so much worship, the worship that you are due. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Before we get into verses 15 to 20, let us review quickly the context, what Paul has already said in chapter 1. Paul, in verses 3 to 8, has already thanked God for what the gospel has done in the lives of the Colossian believers. And we praise God because what the gospel did in them, the gospel has already done in us too, us who believe. It has borne fruit in our lives and increased. In verses 9 to 14, Paul followed up that thanksgiving with a prayer for the continued work of the gospel in their lives. That's what we talked about last week, that gospel growth that as it was seen in them, so it will be seen in us. The gospel continues to do a great work in you and me so that there is this great gospel growth in us. The, The key to that growth is the knowledge of God's will concerning His Son in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The goal for this growth will be that we walk worthily of the Lord, as Paul said, fully pleasing to Him. So there's the key to the growth, and there's the goal, and the key being knowledge of His will is now what Paul is going to explain for us in verses 15 to 23. And we're going to look at verses 15 to 20 today. He's going to show for us what the will of God is concerning Jesus Christ. And it is staggering. It's mind-boggling stuff. So in verses 15 to 20, this one paragraph, we have two sections. And they're very clearly divided. We have three verses each. 15 to 17 shows us that Jesus is the head of the first creation, supreme. And then in verses 18 to 20, we're going to see beautifully that Jesus is the head of the new creation. He is supreme. Christ is all. So let's press into him. The last thing Paul said in verses 13 and 14, he told us that through Jesus Christ, we have been delivered. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ has been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Christ. In Christ, we are redeemed, freed from our sin, its power, 
and its penalty, and we have been forgiven of all of our guilt. Now Paul says in verse 15, the beginning, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. I spoke on this not too long ago, uh, just several weeks ago, but I want, I want to put it this morning in a little bit of a different way, maybe in a more simple way. Because what I see here are in the, the image of God, Jesus being the image of God, are three things. Three R's. Not reading, writing, and arithmetic, even, uh, you know, in a way more simple than that, but not simplistic. Here are the three R's. I think that this means that Jesus is the perfect resemblance of God, the perfect representation of God, and the perfect revelation of God. Let's talk about those three things quickly. First, resemblance. How closely does the Son resemble the Father? As the Father is God, but He is not the Son, so the Son is also God, but not the Father. As the Father is God, but not the Son, so the Son is not the Father, but He is also God. And with the Spirit, the one same God. The same eternality that is the same eternal, uncaused life in Himself existence. The same glory, the same power, the same perfections, all infinite. The same beauty, the same worth. It's a perfect resemblance. How perfectly does the Son resemble the Father? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He is the image of the invisible God. Second, this speaks of representation. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. God acts always through His Son, and the Son always for the Father. He is the perfect representative. He is the worker of all the works of God. He performs all of the purposes of the Father and the Father's only. How perfectly does the Son represent the Father? Think of these words from Jesus. Jesus said in in John chapter 12, Whoever believes in Me believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me sees Him who sent me. Think of that. How perfectly does the Son represent the Father? Whoever sees me, Jesus says, sees him who sent me. So he is the perfect resemblance, the perfect representation. And third, he is God's perfect revelation. Going back to Hebrews 1 again in the same verse, verse 3. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. Where do we look to see the glory of God? This verse in 2 Corinthians 4 should be very familiar to you by now because I have referenced this verse so many times over the years. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found where? In the face of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect revelation of God. Let's think about it like this. Let's make a contrast for a moment between Nebuchadnezzar, 
and God. And Nebuchadnezzar's image and the image of God who is Jesus Christ. So to make a a resemblance of himself and a representation and a revelation of his glory, Nebuchadnezzar, some 500 years before Jesus came, made an image, a golden image, constructed it in the Babylonian plain of Dura. It stood 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And it was to its majesty, its beauty was to resemble, represent, and reveal the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. And he commanded, of course, that everyone in his who was assembled would bow down and worship his image. So to manifest his glory, Nebuchadnezzar built a statue. To manifest his glory, the divine glory, God sent his son into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Let's seek him. Let's continue on. Second part of verse 15 and to 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now here we come to the first um, difficult words of this passage, and I don't think there's too much that would be more perhaps miseasily twisted than these words right here. Because, I mean, you can hear it in the firstborn, right? Firstborn language. We believe and we confess that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. Here, however, Paul says he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, it would be so easy Tempting for some to twist these scriptures and to say, okay, you see, Jesus is not eternal. This passage says that he was the first of the creation to be made. But I want you to think about this with me, because if we put those words and the next words together, we see the idea that, you know, the firstborn meaning Jesus was the first to be made doesn't make any sense. In fact, if Paul was saying that, Paul is a really lousy writer. Because, let's put it like this. And by the way, as, as I, let me make a grammatical note here. All of these he's and him's and himself, um, the, the third person masculine pronoun, all of that that you see in this passage is in reference to Jesus. Okay? So th- that note, and then let's, let's make it Let's do a deliberate, how do you, how do you twist the scriptures reverently? <laughs> That's what we're going to do for a moment. Just to show that this wouldn't make sense. Jesus was the first being created, for by him all things were created. Jesus was the first one created, for by him all things were created. Does that make sense? I mean, you'd be like, 
Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, honestly, and, and so when you look at it that way, we can, we can solve this. What does Paul mean by the firstborn? The firstborn of creation does not mean that he is the first to be made. The firstborn means that he is the authority over all the creation and the heir of all the creation. Just as in the ancient days, the firstborn sons were the primary successors to their fathers. That is, they were, they succeeded their father in being the first authority over the family and the primary heir of their father's estates. And so, here's another example to show you that Paul cannot mean first to be born. In Psalm 89, David, well, you know, where did David rank in Jesse's eight sons? He was the last of the eight sons to be born. He was the youngest. And yet in Psalm 89, he is called the firstborn. The Lord made a promise for David in Psalm 89. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth. Is the Lord saying, I'm going to make him the first one to be born in his family? Obviously not. Rather, he means that he is going to be supreme. He is going to be the head of the kings on earth. He is supreme. And that's what it means when Paul talks about Jesus as the firstborn, not the first to be made, not the firstborn, for he is eternal, but as the firstborn, he is supreme. He is the head and he is the heir. Why? Paul says, for he made it. He made it all. What did Jesus create? All things. All things where, Paul? Everywhere that there is. In heaven and on earth. And before you ask, not only the things that you can see with your own eyes, but that which you cannot see as well. Visible and invisible. And then, it's interesting, and we need to take note of this, Paul focuses in on one specific creation of the Lord Jesus. I mean, you might think, okay, he could talk about like the, the scope of the galaxies or, you know, the intricacy of the human body or something like that. But rather, Paul focuses in on powers. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, this is really important. I could lose you right here, but this is important, so stay engaged. Who does that speak of? Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities? Well, broadly speaking, it encompasses all the powers, but in particular, Paul is focusing on the spiritual powers. And throughout Colossians, we're going to see that unfold, but also in Ephesians. When you go back to Paul's letter to Ephesians, last week I said you the be- told you that the best commentary on Colossians is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we see very clearly uh, what the rulers and authorities means. You remember in Ephesians 6, that very famous passage in which Paul is exhorting us to put on the whole armor of God? Remember that passage? Well, at the end of it, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So whatever he says next can't be talking about anything human, right? 
So he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So from that parallel, we can see what Paul, who he is talking about in Colossians 1. He's talking about the spiritual powers, the invisible powers that exist in the heavenly realm. Now, next question. Why does he concentrate on them to the exclusion of everything else he could talk about? Because it was false teaching concerning these rulers and authorities that had infiltrated the ranks of the Colossian church. And whatever that teaching was, whatever shape it took specifically, it was certainly along the lines that they were thinking, since the heavenly realm is filled with all manner of spiritual powers, we're being shortchanged if we only talk about one. We need to go after the all. Whatever the spiritual powers have to offer us, then we will experience ourselves that spiritual fullness. We need to, we need to tap into all of it. But Paul, he just blows this notion out of the water to basically say, why would you bother? Because there is no power in all the creation except that which Jesus Christ created. Christ is all. And I want to encourage you, as Paul was encouraging the Colossians, there is no one to fear but Christ. And there is no one to seek after but Christ. And there is no power to bless you with spiritual blessing but Christ. All the spiritual blessing from God is in Him and in Him alone. There is no one to redeem you but Jesus Christ. And there is no one to rule over the power over the people of God but Christ and Christ alone. In verse 16, the latter half now, Paul proclaims all things were created through Him and for Him. Jesus Christ is the origin of all things and He is the goal. He is the first and He is the last. He is the beginning and the end, the origin and the goal of all things so that Christ is going to have glory from all of His creation. He's going to have glory from all matter and energy and time, history. He will have glory from it all. He's going to have glory from your life and from my life, one way or another. Even He will have glory from that creation that has rebelled and will continue to rebel against Him. He will have glory. When Jesus Christ has conquered all, all will give Him glory. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So whether on the last day we are cast from His presence or welcomed into His kingdom, Jesus Christ will have glory. Is your hope and your trust in Christ His glory then in your life will be to your everlasting joy. Verse 17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. 
not only did he make all things, but he is right now at this very moment, even in his incarnation, even when he lies helpless and vulnerable, defenseless, humanly speaking, when he lies in the manger, even then, in his divine power, he upholds all things. As Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 again says, I love Hebrews 1, verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All of the order and all of the design is because of Jesus. All the goodness in creation is because of Jesus. All the beauty because of him. The consistency, the symmetry, the cohesiveness, the togetherness, the interdependency, the dependability. I mean, because we know that the sun will rise tomorrow if Jesus wills. It's all because of him. You know, you look through a microscope or a telescope, either one, and you see what Jesus has done, what Jesus has made, and what Jesus sustains. And not only matter, not only energy, but history itself holds together in Christ. It is all progressing forward to the goal of the purpose of God in Christ. Christ holds it all together. Isn't his power, his greatness, and his glory astonishing? This is the God that we worship. Jesus Christ is singularly awesome. He is worthy of all of our worship. So, Paul establishes that Jesus Christ is the head of the first creation. Jesus Christ is supreme. But not only of the first creation, but also the new creation. And he is the head, the supreme head, the Lord of the new creation in ways that we'll get to in a few moments, in astonishing ways. Let's read verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head of the first creation and he is the head of the new creation. He is the beginning of life, as we saw in the last few verses, and he is the beginning of the new life in everything preeminent. It says here that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. When Jesus died and then rose from the dead, this eternal sovereign dealt a death blow to death and all of its powers. And of course, he is the eternal sovereign. He is Lord over all, and he has always been Lord over all. He is the eternal God. But the New Testament very consistently says that the lordship of Jesus was established in a new way by his resurrection. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says that by his resurrection from the dead, the Spirit declares Jesus to be now Son of God in power. Even over death. He has dealt a death blow to death. That Jesus is the firstborn from the dead is very good news for you and for me. He said, and to put it in a different way, in John, he promised his disciples, because I live, 
you also will live. That is the firstborn from the dead means that we who live in him now will live with him and be raised with him on the last day. I paused there for a moment because I thought of those amazing words in John chapter 11 that I just can't help but go to. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Everyone who lives in Jesus now will be raised with him on the last day because he is the firstborn from the dead. It makes me think of that uh, promise. You know how well-known Isaiah 53 is. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you should be familiar with Isaiah 53. But there's this verse at the end. Toward the end, it's not as well-known as the stuff that's packed right in the middle. And at the end, God, God makes His Son a promise. Isaiah 53, uh, let me explain quickly, is one of the, the servant songs of Isaiah. The last third of the book of Isaiah, the 66 chapters, the last third is focusing on the work of the Messiah. And he is called there the servant of God. And we see in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and then 52, 53, that he is the suffering servant. But for his suffering, God promises him great reward. So I just, I think of Isaiah 53.10 in light of that statement, he is the firstborn from the dead. Because in Isaiah 53, this is God's promise. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That is, he is the firstborn from the dead. We are his and he will raise us up. And there is not a power that can lay claim to us because we belong to him. Verse 19 now. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I pray that I speak truthfully here and clearly. What a verse and what a statement. There is so much insight that we receive from this text about the nature of who God the Son is. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, a question may come up. Was pleased to dwell in him when? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. At what point in time is Paul referencing? When did this happen? I don't think that Paul is necessarily pointing to a specific point in time. Now, that can be debated because, well, there's a lot that can be said about this verse, and there's a, we're going to say a lot more when we get to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, when basically the same thing is said, except the word bodily will be added on to it. But it could be said, and many believe, that Paul is talking about at his incarnation. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him at his incarnation. I don't think that it's necessary to come to that conclusion. I believe that what Paul is asserting here is an eternal truth about the Son of God. 
He's not talking about a point in time, but this is true from eternity that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. It's like when Jesus says in John 5, As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And we might think, wait a second, when did that happen? When did He grant the Son to have life in Himself like the Father has life in Himself? And Jesus, who said those words, is not talking about a specific point in time. He is asserting an eternal truth. From eternity, the Father granted the Son to have life in Himself. This is an eternal grant. Because the Son has no beginning. But eternally, the fullness of the Father was pleased to dwell in Him. Now, see, if we want to say, okay, that's limited to the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him you know, right then and there when he was conceived and before then the fullness of God was not in him or something, wouldn't we have to conclude that, and I know I'm, we're, we're gonna do, this is a brain bender here. Okay, just stay with me. If the fullness of God came into the Son at a specific point in time, like he did not have before, then Jesus is therefore less than the Father, right? He is less than. He is not fully God. He is less than God the Father. And if He is less than the Father, then the fullness does not dwell in Him. But that's what Paul is saying, and he is really stressing. The fullness is in Him. Now, think about it you know, like this as well. Paul could have stopped with fullness. He could have topped out right there. He could have stopped with fullness because what is fullness? That's totality. You can't have more than the fullness of God. Again, that's infinity and infinite perfections. So Paul is purposefully redundant here. He says all the fullness because We are standing on the edge of the limits of language here with nowhere else to go. And Paul is taking us here deliberately because he would have us know with full conviction down in our bones that Christ is all. Christ is all. All the worthy, all sufficient, all the fullness of God is in him and there is no other. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. What a passage this is. We have two sections. Jesus, the head of the first creation, and Jesus, the head of the new creation. And now that we have read all of the verses, you can see the parallels between these two sections, how they they correspond so perfectly together. Just think of this. He is the firstborn. Look at verse 15. Why don't you look in your Bible while I go over this. He is the firstborn over the first creation. Verse 15. And the new. Verse 18. He made all things in heaven and on earth, and He reconciles to Himself all things in heaven and on earth. Verse 16 corresponding with verse 20. Jesus is the head of the new 
as well as the first creation. And do notice something, that the reconciliation of all things through him is to himself. I don't know if you've thought about that verse much before, but the way that I have always read that verse up until this week has been that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him so that through him, Jesus, there could be the reconciliation to God of all things. But it was pointed out to me in the sources that I was studying that all of the pronouns, he, hims, himself, all of that, it's um, all in reference of Jesus, all in reference to him. So what is it saying? It is that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, that through Christ, all things would be reconciled to Christ. As Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10 says, it is God's will according to God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All things united under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now this does not teach universalism. That's not what these verses are teaching. Universalism being the false teaching that all people without exception will be saved and eternally reconciled to God in Jesus in the end. That's not what it's teaching. Rather, this is this verse is saying that in the end, well, right now, and in the end, we should look for in Christ, we should look for shalom. With perfect hope, full conviction and, and assurance, we should look for, to use the Hebrew word, shalom. Peace. Reconciliation. He will make all things new. All will be renewed. All will be well. All will be whole. Freed from the bondage of corruption. Renewed in Christ. All will be united under the perfect lordship of Jesus. This is the will of God. And before we think, okay, this is so taxing to my brain. This is heavy doctrine. Weighty stuff. Remember, Paul said it's the knowledge of the will of God that is the key to growing in God. It is the knowledge of His will that is the key to walking worthily of Him. We need to be filled with this knowledge of what God's plans are for His Son and what God's plans are for all things in His Son. Now, how does Jesus achieve this perfect reconciliation and establish His perfect Lordship. Look at what Paul says there at the end. It is by the blood of His cross. In the first creation, Jesus Christ establishes His supremacy by creating. In the new creation, He establishes supremacy by dying. The Creator first spoke and all things came to be. But when the spiritual powers rebelled and then humanity followed suit in its treason, all creation was subject to the curse of sin, the bondage of corruption to death. Therefore, God sent Jesus into the world and the Creator Himself was made flesh 
so that he might bear that flesh and be subject unto death. The Creator was crucified that all things may be reconciled to him. He made all things by the power of his life. He makes all things new by the power of his death. That is the greatness of the glory of Jesus Christ. He is worthy of all of our worship. In Revelation chapter 5, we're given this view of heaven and all the host of heaven singing praise to Jesus. It's really a remarkable passage. You know, I said at the beginning that God says in Isaiah very clearly, my glory I will not give to another. This is remarkable. Thinking of that statement again, my glory I will not give to another. Listen to what heaven sings. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Wait a second. What is heaven doing here? Blessing and honor and glory and might be to God. Yes, of course. But they are attributing the same worship in the very same sentence to this other, to the Lamb. If the Lamb is not eternal God, if He is not God Himself, then heaven itself is guilty of blasphemy and should be cast into hell. But we know the Lamb, Jesus of Nazareth, the one born in time to the Virgin Mary, the one who lived the innocent life and died the sacrificial death, who was raised on the third day and who ascended into heaven and promised He is returning, He is Lord and God. He is Lord and God. Christ is all. So let me encourage every single person to press into Christ. Seek Christ. Christ is all. Children and youth, do you have a set-aside time in the day where you deliberately put up your your favorite digital device that is always calling for your attention. Do you, do you put it up? Do you have a set-aside time to put it up and to be quiet before the Lord? To seek Him in prayer. To draw near to Him in prayer. To press into Christ. Do you have that set-aside time? Do you have a plan? If you don't have a plan, it's not going to happen. Press into Christ because Christ is all. He is all. And and clearly, God wants to be known. He wants you to know Him. Not just know about Him, but He wants you to know Him intimately, heart to heart. That's how He wants to be known. What a privilege, honor, what a glory it is for us to know the Lord. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let's press into Christ. And adults... Do you model that for the children and grandchildren in your life? Do you model that seeking after Jesus deliberately? And you might not have that kind of relationship with anyone yet, you know, the children and grandchildren, so to speak. But let's all press into Christ and know Him 
one caution. If you are looking for some heightened feeling when you press into Jesus, some heightened spiritual experience, I think you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Don't do that. Make this your aim. I'm going to seek God with the promise that those who seek him, he rewards. Those who believe that he exists and who seek him are rewarded. Press into him, draw near to him, let that be your goal, draw near to him, and you will be rewarded. Let us nourish ourselves and grow up in Christ, because Christ is all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you for your Son. He is how we know you. It's Jesus where we see all of your glory revealed, your perfect power and purity, your wisdom and your love. We see it all in Christ. Oh Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that long to draw near to him. Give us diligence, Father, to day by day press into Christ. What joy is ours to have fellowship with you, O Lord. You have given us so much. Lord, I pray for my church family. I know what kinds of distractions there are and what kind of pressures. Lord, we feel these things daily. They're our burden. Lord, help us to set aside time to be quiet and still before you, to think about your word, to meditate upon it, to enjoy you. O Lord, draw near to us and make us, O Lord, to draw near to you. We confess with our mouths, we boast from our hearts that your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is all. In his name we pray. Amen.